Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the Prospect Podcast. I'm Steve Bloomfield. This week we'll be talking to the historian William Dalrymple about the East India Company and British imperialism. William Dalrymple is a Scottish historian and writer as well as a broadcaster for the BBC. He specialises in the history of India, the Middle East and Central Asia. His latest book is called The Anarchy, The Relentless Rise of the East India Company and tells the story of how the 18th century trading corporation grew from being a conventional company dealing with silks and spices to an aggressive colonial power. First though, I'm joined here in the studio by Prospects Arts and Books editor Samir Rahim. Um, Samir, the Labour Party this week unveiled plans to teach children about colonialism and the legacy of empire in schools. Can you remember what you were taught about this when you were growing up? Well, Steve, not very much, really. I mean, I did the usual Tudors and Nazis with the Nazis twice, I think. Um, uh, But in year nine, we did have some uh, exploration of the British Empire, particularly in India. And I remember being taught about the 1857 mutiny, as it was called, and it's now generally called the rebellion. Um, And the explanation for it given was that the Indian soldiers didn't want to put the cow grease or pig grease cartridges in their mouth which they needed to in order to to fire guns and so it was almost like an act of religious insensitivity on the part of the 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 british and therefore um they rebelled of course later on you learn that you know there were rebellions all the time and that there was a consistent battles between various uh, rebellions of indian soldiers and nawabs um, against the british and it was a lot more complicated than that simple thing and of course i didn't really also learn this sheer scale of slaughter that happened post-1857. I mean, it was quite extraordinary. If you visit India today and you go to Delhi and you see that, you know, why is the Red Fort so empty? Well, it's because all the buildings were destroyed and so many people were, were killed. Now, why is the case? I mean, you know, generally countries, they're generally proud of their empires. It's when the country was at its richest, it's when it's at its most powerful, um, when Britain seemed to be the centre of the world. Um, and there are other aspects of uh, the idea of controlling other countries, like, you know, you do have to um, conquer territory, defeat other people, take their resources, um, as well as all the other things about colonialism, like, you know, building railways, which which is a, an important part of it as well. 
people don't really like to think about the most negative parts of their history. And I think, I don't know if it's a conspiracy, it's more like Britain's told itself that it, it, it's collected its empire in a sort of absence of mind. And, it, you know, it was just a trading company and suddenly we had an empire. And then we sort of got rid of it so quickly within a period of about 10 or 15 years that it felt like, oh, well, that was just sort of done with. It's interesting you point out about the the thing about, oh, and we got rid of it quite quickly. The two bits of colonial history I remember being taught were about William Wilberforce and the end of slavery and about the end of empire. So very little about Britain's role in slavery in the first place, very little about how Britain gained this land and subjugated these people in the first place, but quite a lot about how we were good at ending slavery and uh, and how we helped these countries become independent. I remember when I moved to Kenya about 12, 13 years ago to work as an Africa correspondent there, um, learning about the Mau Mau for the first time. And I talked to people then and said, well, were you not taught about this at school? I was like, no, like, no I've, I've literally you know, never heard of the phrase before I started uh, studying Kenya before I, before I moved there because it just it wasn't part of, of our national story growing up. Um, is there, in, in recent years, it's, just, it's become a much more fraught debate. And like so many things um, in our society now, it's been dragged into this culture war um, between, between left and right. Um, is there a way you think for us to re-examine the role that Britain played in its empire um, without having those those battles. Yeah, I think it's because we just have to look at it in terms of a historical event. And I think bad things happen in the past. Um, judging the past simply by the standards of the present is often quite a hard thing to do. There are reasons why 18th and 19th century... Lots of different empires were the way things countries were governed, and then the twentieth century had the rise of the nation state. And a comparison between you know the way the nation state is run and the way empires are run, I think, will be quite interesting. I mean, in India, Britain came in and essentially controlled and fought against the Mughal Empire, which is in itself was an empire with all the things that go along with it. Um, so I don't think it's necessarily about blaming Britain or ex- exceptionalizing it um, in a way. But I do think that when people see, for example, um, you know, why are there so many people of Indian descent in this country? Um, why are people like my own family living here? There are actually reasons for that. It's to do with the deep connection between the two places, um, Britain and India. I mean, my own family came um moved after 1857 and was somehow involved in the revolt, I'm not exactly sure how, and then moved to East Africa, where they were sort of, they were an intermediate class between the British um, uh, and the East African native population. That brought its own level of complication, because they were sort of, you know, implicated in empire, but weren't the most privileged part of it. So it's a complex story. And if you tell it with all its complexities, there's no reason to uh, uh, for people to be afraid of the past. There's that um, Stuart Hall line uh, about why so many people from different countries are here, which is, you know, we are here because you were there. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's I think a lot of people do somehow recognise that there is a connection. I think with 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 Windrush and the scandal over that, um, there is a sense that, well, people were invited over, thought of as the mother country. And going back in the past, you realise that 
they weren't actually a lot of them moving from one country to another country. They were moving between um, one empire. You know, so the idea that um, they're immigrants or migrants in that sense is a sort of different different model. And it's the same with um, uh, members of my family who who effectively had British exactly citizenship, but they did have British. Uh, protectorate passports in Zanzibar uh, uh, and other parts of East Africa and moved over here um, because they were thought to be, in a sense, one entity. So those um, flows of goods and trade and people, I mean, in a way, the empire was, you know, one big market where people were moving around. We'll leave it there, Samir. Thank you very much indeed. And now here's Samir's interview with William Dalrymple. Will and Dalrymple, thank you so much for being here. So let's turn back a little bit to the origins of the East Sydney Company. You're right that it's unusual, and it's, it's, it's a corporation effectively trying to take over a country or bits of a country. How did it come about? The fact that it was a corporation that pioneered the, the British conquest of India um, is something that was glossed over, really, by the Victorians. But it was very well known in the 18th century, and there's, a, and there's actually rather sort of... Um, encouraging amount of outrage in the 18th century press about how a bunch of merchants who should have been trading ended up as princes in the subcontinent and toppling the Mughal Empire. And uh, it's only really Victorian spin that has changed this. And, and in a sense, Indian nationalist opinion has bought the Victorian view. And, and while the Victorians viewed this as a you know great uh, imperial achievement, uh, in India it got turned into a, 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 an equally nationalistic take of, 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 of national oppression followed by liberation. The fact that for two-thirds or three-quarters of the British time in India, it was a corporation that was running it. It's something that's got slightly lost in the wash. And uh, the, it simply, it was founded in 1599 and it remained under company rule uh, until 1858. And in actual fact, there's only 90 years when it's a government affair. Uh, it's a government affair from 1858 to 1947, while for 250 years it's it's run by this company out of Leadenhall Street, out of you know what's now the Lloyd Building, and it was founded in 1599 by uh, a, a former customs uh, officer called Customer Smythe, uh, and um, what was y- unique about it uh, at the time was that it didn't just take large investments from rich London businessmen. It had it was founded with a public meeting and was from the beginning a joint stock company whereby uh, anyone uh, who who wished to invest little money could do so uh, and get a share of the profits. And this was, it wasn't the first, there had been a couple of other companies, particularly the Muscovy Company, which was trading with Moscow. But it was a very unusual business model and one of the great inventions really of Tudor England, one of the most sort of long-lasting innovations uh, today, the corporate world that we know around us, you know, from Google to Facebook but through to ExxonMobil and all these other giant corporations are really just new incarnations of, of that same idea. And if you look at the subscription list to the East India Company, which is still there in the British Library, you can call it up. Um, you have you know, a few ship owners and a few rich merchants often associated with the Levant Company, the, the trade in spices through Egypt and Syria. Uh, but most of the people who are giving their £5 and £7 and £2.50 are vintners, skinners, haberdashers, grocers. In other words, small London businessmen. 
uh, who hoped for a share of the profits. And the company very quickly made enormous profits. The first voyage out um, went to the East Indies, where it didn't really do much trading, but it actually managed to capture, um, as most of the crew were ex-pirates, uh, a Portuguese vessel. Uh, it just unloaded it, its cargo into the, into the uh, company ship, and they came back and made a million pounds uh, selling the spices in, in, in London. And that's uh, one a million and, pounds really meant something. And a million pounds meant a great deal in Tudor England. Um, it, was, it was a huge, huge sum of money. And... Um, the the company initially was dwarfed by the Dutch East India Company, and, and the early trade in spices ended with this uh, English defeat at the hands of the Dutch when there's this swap, this famous swap, when uh, the Dutch get the main nutmeg island, which is called Run, and in return, the English are given as a sop a, a muddy island in the middle of the Hudson River called Manhattan, which, of course, in the long term, turns out to be rather a good swap, but didn't seem so at the time. And driven out of the spice trade by Dutch, uh, the English East India Company begin to trade in textiles, uh, cotton, silks, um, and the indigo to dye, uh, uh, the chintzes and so on. And this turns out to be an incredible piece of luck because at the same time as this happens, the Mughal Empire is becoming the world's leading industrial producer of, of textiles. And it is the English East India Company which transports those textiles around the world so successfully, for example, that there's deindustrialization uh, in Mexico uh, because of the sheer amount of imported Indian textiles. And the the Mughal Empire has just overtaken China for the first time in it, and only time in its history as the world's leading industrial power. It controls about 37% of world GDP at a time when England controls 1.3% of, uh, of world GDP. And uh, yes, there's a there's a fascinating uh, Mughal miniature that uh, is in the book of the Emperor Jahangir uh, on his throne, um, looking terribly important and almost godlike. Um, and James the first sort of in the in the bottom left hand corner, there was a particular the corner, <laughs> the power relationship was very different to the one that we later thought think of. It's and it is in a sense the achievement, if you want to call it that of the company to reverse that because by the time the company's rolled up, Britain is making 30 odd percent of world GDP and India's reduced to single figures. So the the company starts off really parasitic off the back of, of Mughal industry and, and it comes to its first fortune simply by trading Mughal textiles. There's a million weavers in Bengal uh, around the world but it's with Clive that it turns into a different gear and rather than importing massive amounts of bullion from London uh, in return for buying these textiles, uh, it begins to conquer North India and to pay for its investment by um, by taxing Indians, which of course is a brilliant business model. If, if you're a shareholder, you just you you, uh, you you oppress the people, you tax them, and then you use the, the profits from that to uh, to buy cloth, opium, uh, tea, all the things you want to trade in, and and cart it back to Europe for free, effectively. And so when you go around, you know, lovely National Trust houses uh, in the home counties, uh, all built in the 18th century, looking as if sort of Colin Firth is about to stride out in his breeches of any of them, um, many of these were built on the, on the back of, uh, of these fortunes made hand over fist in, in what Indian economic historians call the drain of wealth from India. 
And as you alluded to earlier, there was a lot of discomfort in Britain about the practices of the East Indian Company. I mean, Burke famously um, gave a great speech um, condemning Warren Hastings and the East India Company. And was there a sort of ambivalence? I mean, this this was bringing in a huge amounts of wealth, but at the same time, it wasn't. You know, it was committing war crimes, what we would call now. And how unhappy were with the British general in the eighteenth century, or happy with it with the company? There's an amazing amount of resistance to the company in 18th century England, and actually rather encouraging to read the papers of the day to find out how much outrage there was. Someone like Horace Walpole says we have outdone the Spanish and the Portuguese in their looting of the Aztecs and Incas. They at least had the excuse of faith. We have done it only for profit. Uh, and um, there are, you know, the, the company is, is is widely understood to be uh, a, a terrible. Um, Luta, I mean, loot itself, of course, is an Indian word. Lutna is a, the Hindustani for, for to plunder. Uh, it's, it's a Hindustani verb. And it comes into modern English at this time because uh, it's brought home <laughs> to explain where all these treasures come from. And you go to a place like Powys, the Welsh, uh, the Welsh borders, are, you know, a lovely uh, national trust house, but it has these this whole gallery full of incredible treasures Tipu Sultan's throne, tiger head finials, swords, spears, elephant armor, Hindu statuary, Tipu Sultan's campaign tent, Siraj Dowler's palanquin, just sitting in the middle of the Welsh countryside. And this stuff is just carted back by this company. Uh, and the company does extremely well. It, it builds a third of London dockland. It's Britain's largest employer. It uh, uh, spends in England alone about half as much as the government spends every year uh, uh, commissioning sales and barrels and, 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 and all its trading warehouses and so on. It plants opium in India, which it illegally narco-trades to, uh, to Hong Kong, which is uh, seized at this point uh, uh, as part of um, uh, the East India Company's uh, illegal trade. The, the, the Chinese want uh, opium imported as much as Trump administration wants crack cocaine brought in from Colombia. Uh, and with the profits of its narco operations, it buys tea, which it then sells not only in India and Europe, but also in America. And it's, of course, East India Company tea that's dumped in Boston Harbor, the American Revolution. So it's the world's first properly multinational corporation. And it's the first time you see played out so many of the issues that we imagine to be entirely modern issues uh, coming up for the first time today. So, for example, in, in 1697, within a century of its founding, the company is caught bribing Parliament. It's offering secretly parliamentarians share options if they vote to extend its monopoly. This ends up with... Um, not only uh, the governor of the East India Company, but Jacob Rees-Mogg's predecessor as Lord Privy Councillor, uh, ending up at the Tower of London. Uh, it lobbies. Uh, and, and eventually it says so it barely needs to lobby because um, 40% of MPs have East India Company shares. And so when occasionally the, the, the Royal Navy is persuaded to go and, and sort of biff the French in the Indian Ocean uh, or, or, or destroy a, a, a Nawab's fortification, uh, it, although it's taxpayers' money that's being used to uh, pay for these operations, the the resulting territorial gain doesn't go to the crown. It goes to this private company that exists entirely to enrich its shareholders, as much as you know Goldman Sachs exists for the same purpose today. 
Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. So do you think that when now when we look back on the empire do you think that we still have an excessively rosy picture of it or 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 at least have an image of it as something that well you know there was a bit of plunder and other but but you know there was a civilizing mission there were noble ideals there was a sense of trying to help and improve the people there do you think that that is 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 just a myth really it's a total myth and and it's actually a problem for this country because British people go out into the world, even the best educated Oxbridge minds. You see these high commissioners turning out to Delhi every three years, imagining that Indians regard Britain as their best friend, that there's some terrible accident that partition and and, and, uh, and uh, independence took place. Um, and uh, that really they're longing to, uh, to to come back into the warm embrace of Mother Britain. So much so that you know the whole civil service after Brexit, the first thing they came up with was was literally termed Empire 2.0, that they were going to go back to India and Theresa May would lead this delegation of businessmen and, and that India would bail us out. Our old friends of the Commonwealth would, would come to the rescue like the cavalry around the corner. You know, it, it ain't going to happen. <laughs> the Indians regard us perfectly benignly and, and, and are happy to trade with us. But, uh, you know, they, they regard us as basically as a, the, the East India Company as a piratical pirate operation that looted their, their wealth for 200 years. And they're not far wrong. Uh, and I think actually it, it's, it's a growing problem in Britain that we have this. Uh, uh, when empire ended, when the whole wider British empire ended, it was just sort of packed in a trunk and put in the office. The most famous picture in the Tate Gallery, uh, Mr. Bryden on his horse, the last man on the retreat from Kabul by Lady Butler, got taken off the walls and sent to a regimental museum in Taunton. Uh, and all the other pictures relating to empire were either sent off to New Zealand or India or just, or just put into storage. And the British ceased to teach it. So my kids, like many others, you know, went from learning about the Tudors to the Nazis with maybe a brief stop on uh, with Britain bravely stopping the slave trade or something in between. Um, and people in this country simply don't know about what our ancestors did. They have no conception of, of, of how other people around the globe um, uh, look at us. I've just come here um, prior to this podcast and gave a lecture in St. Ethelburgers in, in the city, which was uh, where 
uh, destroyed when an IRA bomb went off it in 1992 in the, in the Baltic Exchange bomb. And it was a very clear example, again, of, of the way that the, you know, the British Empire has left this legacy of peoples around the world, the Irish, the Indians, many others, who regard the British with deep distrust, if not actual hatred, as a result of the British Empire. And the British are sort of blithely unaware of this in most cases and, and, and sort of benignly think that their ancestors, well, there may have been a little, uh, a little loot and plunder, um, hashtag not many massacres, <laughs> and uh, what about the railways? You know, all that sort of stuff. Uh, it's not how, uh, you know, in the words of, of Robbie Burns, we've, we've got to see ourselves as others see us. Um, and the British have failed to do that. And I think part of the post-Brexit reckoning has to be um, learning to teach our people to know the dark side of what we've done. In, in 1857, for example, probably around 300,000 innocent civilians were killed in, between Delhi, Lucknow and Kampur. This has never appeared on any British curriculum. Uh, no school children learn about this. But this is, you know, massacres on a, on a vast scale. The Gillian Wallabug, which is the most famous massacre, which, which we, we still as a country have failed to apologise for, was, uh, you know, in by British terms, a relatively small massacre. Um, only 450 people shot dead uh, uh, in an unarmed crowd uh, by uh, Gurkhas lining up under General Dyer. Uh, and it's, it's actually very comical, which is not to say, you know, there aren't things we can be proud of. When the British left India in 1947, it definitely had the best education system in, in Asia. It had uh, the best communications and uh, a working... Uh, democratic system and a rule of law but on the way there for 250 years it was run by a private british company which existed solely to to drain wealth from it and to and to uh, make as much profit as possible for its shareholders many of which incidentally were indians uh, and so it's you know it, it's a very mixed picture and by and large british people just know nothing at all about this the irony is of course that um there are now large Indian corporations like Tata and who um, can make decisions that affect you know, steel workers in Talbot and the British government has to go to sort of effectively appeal to them. To um, so you know they've, the Indians have learned the lessons and created their own large companies. Then. Absolutely right, and, and one of the important things in this book, I think, uh, which when I when I'm in this country talking about this book, I tend to emphasise the loot and plunder because this is something the British just haven't sort of penny hasn't dropped here. When I'm in India uh, talking about it, I think a very important part of the story is the amount of Indian collaboration, because there was never more than 2,000 traders in, in 18th century Bengal. And not only did they train up Indian troops to attack other Indian armies, they, trained, they used the money to finance it with Indian bankers. The very first territorial claim the British ever made after Plassey was enabled by the Jagat Set bankers, who were like the Rothschilds of 18th century Bengal, who actually bribed um, Clive two million pounds to uh, to overthrow the Nawab of Bengal, Siraj Udala. Uh, and so th you have this very important and significant decision by India's financial elite to support the company as the least worst option in the time of political disintegration and anarchy after the Mughal Empire collapsed. And it's not just the Jagat Sets and the Mawari Jain bankers of Calcutta, but it's also the, the big Hindu bankers in Banaras and Patna. Uh, and um, consistently, they side with the company and offer them the capital they need to raise the armies of Indians 
to conquer their their com- c- compatriots. And so, I think while the British need a certain amount of soul searching uh, about the looting and the plundering and asset stripping of India in the eighteenth century, I think in India there's a reckoning that needs to be made also with the sheer degree of uh, of Indians, particularly Hindus and Jains, who chose in a sense to back the company over the Mughals. William Derenpool, thank you very much. That's all for this week. Our thanks to William Dalrymple. Uh, you can read Samir's review of his book on the Prospect website. And the issue of Empire and Britain's National Story is going to be explored in a little more detail in the next issue of Prospect, which hits newsstands in roughly a week or so. Uh, Rebecca Lou was this week's producer. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a rating and a review. It really does help other people find us. I'm Steve Bloomfield. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.